And for those who remain, would you please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We're looking at verses 1 to 14 this morning. The title of the sermon is The King of the Sabbath. The King of the Sabbath. Matthew 12, verses 1 to 14, reads, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and he ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. It was said that President Lyndon B. Johnson had trouble establishing his authority in the White House after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. On one occasion, a staff member disrespected the president in a meeting. And Johnson is said to have replied with this. Just you remember this. There are only two kinds in the White House. There are elephants, and there are ants. By the way, I'm the only elephant. In Matthew 12, the Pharisees are having trouble recognizing the authority of Jesus Christ. And we see a statement in verse 8 that is Jesus' I'm the only elephant statement. He says that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is king over the Sabbath. There are only two kinds in this universe. There is creator and there are creatures. And he is the only creator. He's ruler over all. And the Pharisees, they should have recognized that and bowed down to his lordship. Instead, they leave conspiring to kill him. Now the Pharisees are men who 
carry religious influence, but they're not leading people toward God. They're leading people away from God. They're actually, Jesus says, leading people to hell. They had this rigorous, works-based religion that served their own self-interest, but it oppressed the people. They had no heart for God. And in this passage, Jesus exposes their legalistic interpretation of the Sabbath. And he establishes his authority over the Sabbath. And he proves it through an incredibly miraculous miracle in the second account. So to understand uh, this story with some context, we need to understand what is the Sabbath. Okay, what is the Sabbath? So I want to give you an Old Testament theology of Sabbath. The Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, which according to the Jewish calendar is actually Saturday. And so God designates this seventh day as a day unto the Lord for rest and for worship. It is the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments, in the Decalogue. Keep the Sabbath. And the reason for this command goes back to Genesis chapter 1. God worked six days in creation and he rested on the seventh day. And so this was a provision for the people who work six days and can rest and worship on the seventh. A normal interpretation of this law would be that on the seventh day, you would stop your regular business activity. So if you're a farmer, stop farming. If you're a fisherman, stop fishing. If you're a tradesman, stop trading. Give that day to the Lord in worshipful activity and rest. Some of that worshipful activity, by the way, would include Sabbath sacrifices in the temple. So there's this ceremonial aspect of this law, you know, worshiping the Sabbath on the seventh day, on Saturday, and going to the temple for the sacrifices. But there is this moral or this principial aspect of the law that encourages you to find rest. Find rest. So the law is a gift. It's not a burden, not meant to be a burden. It's a gift of grace for the good of the people. But you know what the Pharisees are? They are experts in turning good into guilt. Grace into a grind. God's gifts into a way of self-glorification. And we got to be careful not to do the same. We can easily kind of revert to being law beaters. Legalists, even. We can slip into maybe the routine, the ritualistic dutiful aspects of religion. And we need to remember that the yoke of Christ is not that way. The yoke of Christ is kind. His burden is light. God's commands are not burdensome. Our obedience shouldn't be motivated by duty or obligation, but should be motivated by love, gratitude, and thankfulness. And we need to find rest in the Lord of the Sabbath rather than finding more work to do on the Sabbath. And so there's much for us to learn from this account. Let's walk through both of these accounts. Let's walk through the text. Point number one in your outline is an absurd accusation. An absurd accusation. The author tells us in verse 1 that Jesus and his disciples uh, are through the grain fields and the disciples are hungry and they 
pluck heads of grain to eat. Now, it's important to note, the disciples are not stealing. They're not doing anything unlawful. In fact, the Old Testament law required farmers to leave the edge of their fields unharvested for this very reason. When the poor or the foreigner walks through and they're hungry, they can pluck heads of grain and they're permitted to eat. This is legal activity, Leviticus 19.9. But when the Pharisees saw it in verse 2, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. This is the absurd accusation. First of all, it's absurd because the disciples were not acting unlawfully. Second, and I think this is worse, the Pharisees thought they had the right to keep the king of the Sabbath accountable to laws, not that God had made, but that they had made up. The subtext of this accusation is, we are the Sabbath keepers, and your men are doing wrong by us. Very prideful. Because you won't find any command from God in the Old Testament that forbids hungry people from plucking or eating grain on the Sabbath. That's not God's law. That's the Pharisees' added law. These are legalistic codes that they added on to interpret what it meant to keep the Sabbath. And we find these codes in the Mishnah, what's called this group, this, uh, this collection of rabbinic writings. Check this out. In the Mishnah, there are 39 prohibited acts for the Sabbath. These are things that you cannot do according to their code on the Sabbath. I'm going to read the list. You cannot sow seed, cannot plow dirt, reap a harvest, bind sheaves, thresh grain. You cannot winnow chaff, choose produce, grind grain, sift grain, knead dough. You cannot bake goods. You can't shear wool, wash wool, beat wool, dye wool, spin wool, or weave wool. You cannot make two loops. You can't weave two threads. You can't separate two threads to weave them again. You can't tie rope or untie rope. Sew two stitches. Tear cloth in order to sew stitches. You cannot trap an animal. Cannot slaughter an animal. Can't fillet an animal. Can't salt an animal. Can't cure an animal. You can't scrape an animal. Can't cut up an animal. You can't write two letters. You can't erase two letters in order to write two letters. Can't build anything, tear down anything, put out a fire, kindle a fire, hit with a hammer, and you cannot transport an object from one domain to another. How many of us failed the mission of code this morning? Cooking breakfast. I failed tying my shoes. According to the Mishnah Code, see, by plucking grain, the disciples were guilty of reaping. By rubbing it in their hands, they're guilty of threshing. By blowing off the chaff, they're, they're guilty of winnowing. And by the total of these activities, they're preparing a meal which is all forbidden. Their law is absurd. It's unrealistic. It's extra-biblical. It's nonsense. And it's hypocritical. And Jesus is going to point out the hypocrisy in their laws. And we need to be reminded, listen, to not obsess over matters of little significance at the cost of matters with great importance. 
Don't get caught up in matters of little significance at the cost of matters that are of greater importance. So how does Jesus respond to their absurd accusation? Well, that's point number two, his royal response. His royal response. Jesus shows the absurdity by giving them two examples of people that they respect And then he identifies three truths about the one that they disrespected with their accusation. So first, the two examples. The example of David is number one. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus highlights an event that is recorded in 1 Samuel 21. Here's the summary of it. David is on the run from King Saul, who's trying to kill him. He runs into Ahimelech, the priest, and he asks him for food because he's hungry. And Ahimelech says he has no food except the holy bread of the presence. Now, according to the law in Leviticus 24, the holy bread of the presence was set aside by the Lord for the priests to eat and the priests only. Okay, so it was holy bread for the priests. But Ahimelech goes into the temple, he gets that holy bread, and he gives it to David so that David can eat it and feed his men. Now, no Pharisee in their right mind would accuse the great King David of breaking the law. Oh, they have sympathy for David. Oh, David was hungry. That's okay that he ate the holy bread of presence. He has permission within the law to eat that holy bread. And Jesus asked them, why do you grant David and his men permission within your law, but not me and my men permission when my men are hungry? Do you see the hypocrisy? in their law. Not to mention, and and this could be a whole sermon in and of itself, how Jesus is the greater David, the son of David. How disrespectful to the king. But they don't see it. So Jesus gives a second example, and the second example is the example of priests. Jesus says, how about your priests? They work on the Sabbath. They're filleting and slaughtering animals all day to provide for the sacrifice. Are they lawbreakers? Oh, no, 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 no. The priests have permission within the law to break these codes. It's necessary for the sake of the people, to serve the people. And so they have permission, according to Numbers 28.9, they're ordered, in fact, to make these sacrifices on the Sabbath. Jesus says, you hypocrites. So you're willing to bend your rules for David and for the priests, but you're not willing to bend the rules for the Lord and his men. The Sabbath wasn't made to become a, a, basically a rule to enslave people. It was meant to serve man, not for man to serve the Sabbath. That's what he says in the parallel account in Mark 2.27. He says, the Sabbath was made for men, not men for the Sabbath. See, this was a gift from God for rest, for worship. And the Pharisees turned that gift into a tool of guilt to enslave the people and bind their consciences. Shame on them. Shame on them. See, rather than being good shepherds and leading the people into the rest that God provided, they were leading people by ball and chain to a list of rules that God did not even give. Legalism. What an important reminder for us, isn't it? To not drift into this. To not become all law and no grace. 
Don't set a bar so high that you can't even come close yourself to meet its demands. Parents, think about your parenting. Do you have unrealistic standards for your kids? All law, no grace? That shouldn't be so. How about in your marriage? Unrealistic standards for your spouse? In your workplace? Demanding rigid compliance? Being critical of others that don't meet what you think should be the standard? Remember, Christ didn't give us a, a hard yoke, did he? He gave us an easy yoke. He gave us a kind burden. He wants obedience out of a grateful and a a thankful heart. Obedience from love. We need to create... Christ doesn't give us an easy yoke so that we can create a harder one for other people. He gave us an easy yoke so that we would treat others kindly, mercifully, lovingly, graciously. Show people, show your kids, show your spouse, show your coworkers that you believe and you preach a gospel of grace, not law. Take them by your words and your actions to Christ. Full of grace and mercy, full of love, where they can find rest for their soul. A new heart by faith. Be careful against the legalism of the Pharisees. The hypocrisy of all that. So after pointing out their hypocrisy, Jesus turns and he emphasizes three important truths about himself. They disrespected Jesus Christ by this accusation. And Jesus makes it very clear. Point number one, they need to remember or they need to see that Jesus is the substance over the shadow. Jesus is the substance over the shadow. He says in verse 6, I tell you, something, or someone rather, greater than the temple is here. He's in your presence. Now this was a startling statement because the temple was the center of religious activity. It was the place of of most importance. It was the place of worship. It was the place of atonement. It's the place where spiritual rest was administered to the people. The, the, The temple to them was most important. And Jesus says something or someone is even more important. And he's here in their presence. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 to 17, explains this in relation to the shadow. Uh, uh, Sorry, the Sabbath. I think I have the verse up on the screen. But it says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon. These were ceremonial aspects of the law. But look at what's included. Or a Sabbath. Don't let people pass judgment on you in regards to the Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. You might be familiar with Plato's allegory of the cave. To borrow from that illustration, you can think of the priests and Sabbath activity in the temple. Those are like the shadows bouncing on the inside of the cave wall. And the Pharisees are like those chained slaves that are looking at the shadows and speculating, what do these things mean? What do these things reveal? What's the reality? Well, Jesus Christ is casting the shadow. Those shadows point to the reality, which is Christ. And they won't turn to simply see the one who is the king of the Sabbath, the one who wrote these ceremonies and laws, and the one who who fulfills them himself. 
See, look, listen to this. Instead of a place to worship, Jesus is the person we worship. Instead of God dwelling in a place or a building, Christ dwells within us. if We believe in Him. Instead of priests making perpetual sacrifices for atonement, Jesus makes atonement once and for all by His sacrifice. Instead of going to a place or a building to find rest, God's people are now invited by the King Himself. He says, come to Me and I will give you rest. Oh, Jesus is far greater than the temple. Far greater than the temple. And these, this whole sacrificial system was like a big arrow pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice, the King, Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater than the temple. God, not in a building, but in human flesh. And the Pharisees were missing it. Why were they concerning themselves with shadows when standing right in front of them is the substance, Jesus Christ. The second truth they're missing about Jesus is that Jesus wants mercy over duty. Verse 7. There was once a king at war. He sent most of his soldiers to the battlefield, but he charged a select few to stay behind and guard the city. So the soldiers who stood at the gate, they noticed in the far distance a wounded man crawling toward them. One asked the other, Should we go help this man? No, he replied. We shouldn't leave our post. It could be the enemy. At about 100 yards away, they noticed the familiar seal on his chest. The soldier said, That's one of our men. That's not the enemy. Should we go help him? No, replied the officer. We shouldn't leave our post. It could be a decoy from the enemy. The man continued to crawl toward them, and about 20 yards away, the soldier cried out, Sir, that's no ordinary man. That's the king's son. Should we help him? No, replied the officer. Fulfilling our duty to the king is more important than helping his son. The boy died at the feet of these soldiers. What do you imagine the king will say to these men? Perhaps the same thing that God told the people of Israel in Hosea 6.6, which is what Jesus quotes here in verse 7. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Listen, when it comes to choosing between your religious duties and helping people, choose the latter. That's the whole point of the law. The sum of the law, the heart of the law is this. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself. There is always room for acts of compassion within the law. Because the heart of God is that. So instead of condemning the disciples, the Pharisees should have fed them. Should have offered them food themselves. But like they do, they neglect the weightier matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness for trivial matters like their Mishnah code. They just are not getting it. They have this external shell of a religion, but there's no heart for God and there's no heart for people. They don't care about the poor, the needy, the weak. But Jesus does. Jesus does. He wants mercy over duty. 
the third point that they're missing about Jesus is just very blunt, very simple. Jesus is the king over the Sabbath. Jesus is the king over the Sabbath. This is the decisive truth of the matter. He says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There it is. Jesus is plainly declaring His divine authority, by the way. The Son of Man is Jesus' messianic reference to Himself. When He says, Son of Man, He's saying, I am the Christ. I'm the promised one, the anointed one that the prophets talked about. And this is, you may not see it, but this is a declaration of deity. There is no one higher than the law except who? God. By calling himself Lord of the Sabbath, he's putting himself on the same plane as God, equal with God. By declaring that he's Lord of the Sabbath, he, he is in a sense saying, hey, I wrote the law. Hey, I enforce the law. Hey, I loosen the law if I want or tighten it when I want. I give permission and I take away privileges according to the law. I have the right. He does. He, he's the only elephant. We're all ants, including the Pharisees. And they don't recognize who they're talking to. They don't know that they are of enforcing their Sabbath law code to the one who gave the Sabbath to God's people. Oh my goodness. They should have recognized this and fell on their faces prostrate and bowed down and said, please have mercy on us. Forgive us for not seeing your authority. But they don't do that. Jesus declares his authority. He proves his authority through another powerful miracle in the next account. So let's go to the second Sabbath account now. It, it starts with a sinister setup. That's point number three. A sinister setup. Look at verse 9. He went on from there and he entered their synagogue. All right, pause and note. Jesus keeps the Sabbath. Where does he find himself on the Sabbath? In the place of worship. In the synagogue. See, Jesus isn't trying to go out of his way and irritate the Pharisees. He's complying with Sabbath law. He fulfills the law. He doesn't abolish it. The Pharisees are going out of their way to be irritated by him. They're the problem. They're looking for opportunities to subvert him. And so, look at verse 10. There was a man there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Matthew gives us his commentary. So that they might accuse him. Now, this is just wrong. This is wrong. Not only to try and trap Jesus, but to exploit a crippled man in the process. They don't care about him. They don't care about him. They, they only want to use him to make a case against Jesus. Oh, so wicked. So sinister. They'll go to any length at any cost to dethrone Jesus. They can't. Jesus responds to their sinister scheme. And he shows us his sympathetic signature. That's point number four. His sympathetic signature. Artists, they leave their signature on their, on their work, on their paintings, to verify that it is indeed their work. 
Leave a little initials in the bottom right-hand corner, whatever, their signature on the back. The signatures of Christ are miraculous acts of compassion. The signature of Christ is a little girl who was once dead, but she now walks. The signature of Christ is a man who was once blind, but now he sees. Signature of Christ is a man who once had leprosy and uncurable disease, but now is clean and restored to temple worship. That's the signature of Christ. There's his verification of his authority. It's all out in the community that he's ministering to. He is healing the sick. He is exercising demons from the demoniacs. He is performing powerful, irrefutable acts, miraculous acts. No one can deny them. And he does it right before the eyes of the people. And these acts, though, just aren't a party trick. It's not just a miracle, but they're displays of compassion, of love, of mercy, of those who are sick, those who are weak, those who are struggling, the outcasts. Oh, he loves people so much. And so he heals them from a heart of love and to verify his authority. But before he performs this miracle, he responds to the Pharisees again with a just to highlight their hypocrisy, and he, he gives a universally accepted example. It's the example of helping an animal. Now, I know there might be some animal lovers out there. And at times, you're tempted to think that your dog is as important as your neighbor. Maybe some of you believe that your dog is more important than your neighbor. But listen to the words of Christ. Listen to what he says. He says to them, which one of you who has a sheep, this is a rhetorical question, by the way, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you'll not take hold of it and lift it out. The answer to that question, without argument, by the way, from the Pharisee, is that, yes, they would save the sheep on the Sabbath. Anybody would. They would save that poor little sheep. Now, some commentators suggest that the, that the scenario is so specific that the Pharisees actually had a written law somewhere that they could save sheep on the Sabbath. That they, they had that written permission somewhere. Why? Well, because sheep are important, valuable pieces of property. And oh, you wouldn't want to lose precious property, would you? So there's got to be some permission for economic reasons, of course, to save that sheep. Or if you're a shepherd, man, those sheep are precious to you. Valuable, valuable animals, valuable pets. And so there must be some kind of incentive here to dive in and save the sheep. And, and they gave permission for a man to do that. And Jesus makes the argument from the lesser to the greater. He points out the hypocrisy of that. How much more value is a man than a sheep? How much more value? Amen. So you'll bend the law to save an animal, but you won't bend it to help people? You misunderstand the law altogether. You're missing the heart of it. And Mark tells us in his account that it's at this point that Jesus gets angry. And he looks at them sternly with righteous anger. He was grieved by their hardness of heart. The Pharisees lack compassion. They're prideful. They consider their own interests more important than others. They oppress the people with legalistic standards. The Pharisees directly oppose grace. Now, what a stark contrast we see from the gentle king, Jesus Christ, who is gentle and lowly in heart, to the harsh and haughty Pharisees, 
who are critical, judgmental, prideful, and law, law, law. Who are you more like? Christian? Non-Christian? Who are you more like? The gentle and lowly Christ? Or the harsh and haughty Pharisee? Who are you more like in your parenting? Who are you more like in your marriage? Who are you more like in the workplace? Who are you more like in the community? Critical, judgmental, prideful, putting yourself above others, your interests more important than theirs? Or the gentle and lowly Christ who bears the burdens of others, who loves selflessly, compassionately, is merciful, gracious, kind? Who are you more like? I was so convicted studying this passage because it's so easy to kind of get in this mode of criticizing the Pharisee, putting yourself above them, like, oh man, look at them. They're so sinister, so evil, so prideful. Well, what about me? What about us? We can easily revert to this kind of legalism, this kind of pride, this arrogance to put ourselves above others, to hold people to standards that we ourselves don't even meet. May we not do that. May we look more like Christ than the Pharisee. May we show and, and speak the words of, of Christ and the, and the actions of Christ that are full of grace, mercy, and compassion. May we be more like the Savior. May we rest in our gracious, kind Savior. To steer clear of Phariseeism, we need to be cautious and guard our own hearts against legalism. The final point permission and verification to do good. The king grants permission and he gives his signature of verification to do good. Look at the second half of verse 12. He says, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. There, the king declares it. He grants permission. It is said and done. It's lawful permission granted to do good on the Sabbath. And you got to think, especially on the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath is a good gift from God, and so to display and to show His goodness given to us, shouldn't we reflect it to others, especially on a day like the Sabbath? Oh, that's a day for good works. That's a day for love. That's a day for mercy. That's a day for grace, if above and beyond any other day. Here again, we have an arrow to the heart of the law. All of God's commands can be summed up with this, Love God and love your neighbor. If you're doing those two things well, then you're fulfilling the law. You're walking according to the law of Christ, right alongside the Savior who did those things perfectly. The greatest good that Jesus could do in this moment is to heal this man. And so he does. Here's his signature. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And it was restored, healthy, like the other this is amazing. I don't know if you've known anybody with uh, a disfigured limb. I'm thinking specifically of a brother at my previous church. He was born with a stunted arm. He's a full-grown man. He's an older man. And one of his arms looks like that of maybe a two- or three-year-old child. And the other arm is fully grown, like the arm of a man. It hindered him his whole life. Um, from various activities, obviously, he was made fun of when he was young. Even as a grown man, he still wears certain kinds of shirts that kind of hide his deformed limb. 
How much harder do you think it was for a man in the first century when your hands were your means of work? You've got to work with both hands. You need both legs. If you weren't healthy, you couldn't, you know, compromise with a, maybe a job that, um, that helps the handicap or, you know, behind a desk computer. No, he, he was prevented probably from work. Only a certain number of jobs he could have done. This man had a hard life, no doubt. He's probably ostracized, made fun of. Maybe even suspected by the Pharisees that he had some sort of sin in his life and that's why he was deformed. And just like that, Jesus Christ, with a heart of compassion, sees this man and he heals them. Just by words, stretch out your hand. And he stretches it out and is restored and it looks just like the other one. This is, a, this is an amazing miracle. Jesus is glorious and mighty. He's infinite in mercy. His compassion is unending. You got to think, man, if they see this right before their eyes, do they get it yet? Do they recognize him as the king? He just verified his authority and his power. Could this be the straw that breaks the Pharisees? Would they finally humble themselves before the king and say, okay, we get it. You're the Messiah. We're wrong. Forgive us for our sins. Make us truly righteous. Because we have no righteousness within ourselves. No, what do the Pharisees do? Strong contrast in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Calvin, John Calvin writes this, They are so affected by a wicked hatred of Christ that they are blind amidst the full brightness of the sun. Jesus heals a man before their very eyes. He proves his authority and power. They're looking at the substance of the shadow, the one greater than the temple, the king of the Sabbath, the king over kings, but pride. Pride gripped their hearts and had them walk away in anger rather than joyful submission. i got to ask, has pride, has pride gripped your heart today? Are you refusing refusing to submit or surrender to Christ because of some sin in your life and you're pridefully holding on to it or this kind of prideful, critical, I'm still good enough to get there, make it to heaven kind of attitude? Don't commit the same fault that the Pharisees did. Surrender. Humble yourself before the Lord, the King of the Sabbath. And trust in Him for your salvation, not in yourself. You can't make it. You can't make it on your own. Merit. Only by the grace of God. Through the work of Jesus Christ who came down and lived this perfect life and fulfilled the law when none of us could. Who sacrificially died on the cross to atone for and forgive us of our sins and who rose again from the dead, declaring victory over sin, Satan, and death. He's the champion. He's the Savior. He's the King. And he's now ascended to the right hand of God and He's coming back for His people. Do you know Him? Have you surrendered to Him by faith? Trusted Him as Savior? And are you following Him, taking up His yoke? It's not a burden. His yoke is kind. It's gentle. Do you know Christ? Are you beholding Him, the King of the Sabbath? What do we do with these accounts? Well, we just got to behold Christ and worship Him. Magnify the Lord Jesus because He's awesome. 
We also got to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. We got to beware of the trappings, the prideful trappings of legalism. And we got to find rest in Jesus Christ because He is our Sabbath rest. What do we do, just in conclusion, with the Sabbath law? Do we keep the Sabbath today in the same way that they kept it in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant? Well, I just want to give an explanation of, of how we view the Sabbath today, God's new covenant people in the church. Just a couple of notes to get us there. And just listen in. While the other commandments in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, they're repeated and re-emphasized by Jesus in Christ's law, it's interesting, the command to keep the Sabbath is not. Now, Christ did keep the Sabbath, he did fulfill the law, but he doesn't re-emphasize or reteach it in the way he does the other commands. Paul, in all of his instruction, all his writings to the church, he only references the Sabbath twice, in Romans 14 and Colossians 2. In Romans 14, Paul seems to place the the strict observance of the Sabbath as an issue of preference, kind of like food or drink, the other aspects of the old ceremonial law. In Colossians 2, we saw that passage. The Sabbath is included in all the other ceremonies within the law. And we are told these ceremonies are like shadows that point to the greater substance, which is Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews writes that those who have believed in Jesus have entered Sabbath rest. So the believer finds rest not in a place, not in a temple, but rest in Christ. Rest in the work and the person of Christ. I think it's more than a coincidence, by the way, that Matthew 12 immediately follows Christ's promise to give us rest in Matthew 11, 28, and 29. So I believe that all of this evidence suggests that the church is not bound by the ceremonial aspects of Sabbath law. We don't keep the Sabbath in the sense that the, uh, those in the Old Testament do. We don't keep it on Saturday. That's obvious. You're here. It's Sunday. And we don't perform the Sabbath sacrifices, definitely. Those have ceased in Christ. Yet, the Sabbath principle of finding rest that is found in Christ. And that we can do Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That's that's coming to Jesus by faith, taking up his yoke and finding rest in him. Rest in the gospel. Rest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Rest in the indicatives, what God has done for you through Christ. The promises of Scripture. An aspect of faith, trust, and rest. Rest. We need to be doing that as believers. Okay, so that's Sabbath. But listen, we have other commands in the New Testament that tell us to gather as a church regularly. So don't take this account and say, ah, I don't have to come to church on Sunday. No. There are other commands in the New Testament to gather the people of God to encourage and stimulate one another to good works. Hebrews 10, 25, we see an example of that in Acts chapter 2, the the early church constantly, day by day, devoting themselves to the fellowship, to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread. We choose to do that on Sundays, which is the first day of the week. This is a long-standing tradition in the church. It's related to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that happened on Sunday. And uh, one theologian suggests that in the Old Testament, the pattern was 
work, 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 rest. In the New Testament, the pattern is rest, then work, which is kind of cool. The gospel pattern of finding your rest in Christ and then walking with Christ in obedience by faith. So whatever your preferences are related to the observance of Sabbath or the Lord's Day, what you wear, what time you show up, what songs you sing, etc., make sure that above all else, listen, believer, this is important. Here's the principle, that you're resting in Jesus Christ. You're resting in the gospel, that you know Christ, that you're resting in the promises that come through him by faith. That, that even the day, the day that you choose to worship, it's not about you, but it's about Him. We glorify Christ. And make sure that as a result of that rest, that you're showing mercy to others. That you're doing good to your neighbor. Not to gain righteousness or to earn their love. But you show mercy and you do good because Christ has loved you so much. And He has made you righteous. So now walk in righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You come to us this morning through Your Word with great truth, preeminently that we should rest in Jesus Christ, the Lord, the King of the Sabbath. That we should make sure that our hearts are oriented toward Him, our Savior, our King, Help us to not revert to the legalism of the Pharisees. Help us to not be all law, no grace. Help us not to be people who sometimes act like we didn't already receive grace from you. Like like you didn't love us and that faith wasn't a gift but something we earned. Sometimes we, we live a certain way differently than what we believe. Remind us of the truths of the gospel, that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not a work. It's a gift from you, O oh God. Just like the Sabbath. It's the way that we find rest. Rest for our weary souls. Help us to rest in Christ. And as a result of that rest, to show others mercy, grace, love, generosity, to serve one another on the Lord's day, not because we have to, because we want to. You have so served us. God, I pray that you'd make us gospel people. You'd conform us into the image of your Son. And I pray that even anybody here today who hasn't found that soul rest, or still working by their own strength and, and trying to maybe seeking salvation by their own works, show them now that they can't do it. That nobody can earn salvation by their works. It's not by works. They need to trust Christ and believe in Him. Confess that He is Lord. Believe that He is raised from the dead. And they will be saved. Pray that they would turn to Christ even today. In Jesus' name, amen.